Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. So I'm delighted to have Scott Brinker. He's the VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot. He produces the MarTech map. Uh, you've probably seen it. It's got 13,000 logos on it. And gets a lot of attention every year. And he just published MarTech in 2024. It's a 93-page report with his partner, Franz Riemersma. And we'll include it in the show notes. Incredibly comprehensive and forms the basis uh, for the show today. Scott, is there anything else you want to share? Wow, no. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Matt. Okay. Well, the kind of topic of the day in, in the broader world right now is AI. And McKinsey recently had a report where sales and marketing is the most impacted function or greatest source of savings from AI. Uh, Battery Ventures uh, had a go-to-market edition that had marketing headcount potentially being reduced by 50% thanks to AI. And at a high level, and I know it's a very tough question to answer, how much do you see AI impacting marketing headcount first? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a hard question to answer. And I suspect, again, this is going to be a question throughout many different disciplines, uh, you know, throughout society. And I think also you have to take with a grain of salt what the time horizon is. Um, you know, uh, I, I modestly feel like, all right, I kind of get a sense of what's going to happen here over the next year or two. But I think one of the things with this Gen AI explosion that happened last year is we recognized how significantly things can change quickly. And so, you know, you play this out over the next 10 years, your crystal ball is probably better than mine. Um, I think for, you know, in the you know next year or two, it's, it's really to me more of a question of shifting of where marketers are spending their time. I mean, marketing, marketing has a lot of like just uh, grunt work labor associated with it. Yeah. I mean, for all like, you know, we're all in it for like the strategy and the creative and, you know, the growth impact, you know, but the yeah, mechanics, you know, of launching these campaigns and programs, the mechanics around doing the analytics on them uh, is can get incredibly tedious. And so I think in the short term, I'm very excited about generative AI, both from a creation perspective, helping to accelerate uh, the time in which like marketers can put things together. Um, you know, you could say like, oh, well, if it takes less time to put something together, then there'll just be less work. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is to say like, okay, most marketers I know have like an infinite list of ideas and experiments and things that they're eager to try. And the number one thing that like holds them back from that imagination and that creativity is just, okay, well, the amount of work involved in pulling together one of those experiments, you know, and so my expectation is going to be, you know, as we make it easier and cheaper and faster, you know, to be able to iterate on new ideas, I think you'll actually see marketers lean into that as a way to accelerate performance through, frankly, yeah, just a, you know, a greater coverage of ideas. The other area where I think it's going to be incredibly helpful is on the analytical side of that. And I know we might get into this a little bit more, you know, but uh, most people, when they think of, you know, Gen AI, they think about, oh, and it'll help you write these blog posts and help you generate these, you know, images. And it's a very content oriented uh, worldview. And, 
can be wrong, lots of exciting things there. But I'm actually in many ways more excited about how these Gen AI interfaces are going to help the non-data expert marketer who isn't a data engineer, isn't a data scientist, you know, be able to self-service more and more of the questions they have about patterns within their data, you know, ideas that they want to explore analytically. I'll, I'll stop there. And that makes perfect sense. Like a, a common bottleneck I've encountered when talking with people is like just the sheer access to data analysts at a company, like actually getting their time, setting the scope and, and truly getting the access to them. Now on that topic, with any of these AI uh, features or tools that have this data analytics capacity, have you been seeing any trends with respect to like their accuracy? Like whether if you ask them an analytical question that they actually give you accurate or useful um, responses? Yeah, so it's really important that the use case I am talking about is not having generative AI generate the answer for you, the way in which like, you know, ChatGPT, like, hey, okay. ChatGPT, tell me about Napoleon, you know, but rather using these LLMs to basically translate the marketer's request into then what will actually be a deterministic, like either SQL query or a configuration for a report in their analytics platform. And that it won't be a black box, but it will actually like, okay, it then comes back and says, all right, you made this that request. I translated it into configuring a report. Let me show you that report. And actually, I can show you what all the data elements are that are contributing that report, how we mapped it out. In fact, actually, I can even let you turn the knobs and, you know, tweak them if you want, you know, but yeah, it's definitely not about treating the AI as like a black box Oracle, but really using it to just help translate the requests into getting an analytical view that is very deterministic. And that's pretty powerful functionality when you think about it. And when you're describing <laughs> that is the thing that has me most excited about this stuff right now, because, you know, part of it is like MarTech. I mean, again, there's so much amazing stuff that's, you know, been innovated here over the past decade, but boy, on the whole, it's gotten really complex. Uh, and just like the normal person, it's like you can't even like tap into so much of this power because of that complexity. And so, yeah, starting to use these Gen AI interfaces, these LLM natural language interfaces is a way, yeah, to let just an average person be able to like navigate through to the power uh, of some of these tools. I think it's huge. Interesting. So my takeaway from this, and I agree with a lot of it, that like marketing so much, if you do it workflow by workflow is messy and human. And, you know, there's just not a lot that AI can replace, at least for now. Like, right, you can draw a trend line and say AI is going to be great seven years from now, but that's pretty hard to do in many ways that I don't foresee a huge marketing headcount reduction kind of over any immediate period. Um, but I, I see a lot of potential for AI. I think it's going to be a very powerful tool, uh, to say the least. It's going to be an interesting few years ahead. <laughs> I know. I, your your MarTech map is going to have a whole new dimension to it. Which uh, Oh, my goodness. I'm going to turn it over to the AI. When the AI can actually generate the map, then I will know that we've uh, achieved something. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting from this like market map perspective. Is we, we've been doing some broader work on B2B AI. And... For whatever reason, it's harder to fit these, you know, AI opportunity, the AI natives into the context. And it's a lot of new paradigms and, 
you know, new names to track and not a lot of accurate boxes at this point in time. So it's, you're going to have even more logos and even more boxes on that thing soon enough. That's actually one of the things I think is really cool is, I mean, I've always felt a bit, if I'm being honest, a bit icky about categorization in the MarTech landscape because, you know, categories are something that, you know, it's almost kind of like an inside baseball of the analysts and us thinking about like, well, is it this kind of technology or that kind of technology? When in truth, right, like you really want to be focused on, you know, not these like Lego blocks of, you know, a tech stack, but you want to be thinking about like, oh, what are we trying to actually achieve with the business and the customers? And in many ways, some of the most innovative MarTech sort of defies the categories because it, it, it blurs them, you know. And so in many ways, yeah, to your point that, you know, this whole wave of AI, you know, is in forcing us to sort of rethink categorizations because things are coming in that take it from a very different angle. I actually think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it's going to be hard for us to figure out where to put stuff on a map, yes. Uh, but I think uh, from an innovation perspective, uh, it's a really great inflection point. Now, do you ever foresee that number actually going down of MarTech apps? Like, you know, because times get tougher, venture capital dries up, and it's very easy just like that to predict, oh, a lot of these companies are going to disappear. Yeah, wow. There's so many ways to answer that question. So I guess one thing I'd point out is it's definitely not just MarTech. You know, in fact, actually, uh, uh, like I know the cloud site uh, G2 that does ratings on SaaS software, you know, they've shared with me, they track ratings on something like 120,000 different SaaS products. And they recognize that they don't even have anywhere near full coverage. Disciplines like FinTech, you know, all the different tools that are available to IT and, you know, software development teams. Actually, the number of tools in those spaces uh, dwarf, like the number uh, that we see in the MarTech space. And so I think, it's been a shift in just the nature of software. Now, what's interesting is, you know, when you look at it through the lens of like venture capitalists, you know, and we're so used to coming from a software world where like, okay, you'll have a few different players in a the category, they'll battle it out, and then there'll be one or two that, you know, sustain and become these multi-billion dollar giants. And that's the software market, you know, and this world in which we've ended up in where, Yes, there's still that thread that happens. We still see, you know, consolidation between competitors and categories. We see large companies, you know, that do emerge in new categories. But we also see around it like this incredibly frothy long tail, you know, of more niche applications. Uh, we did a whole thing in the report of just looking at the different kinds of like long tail apps out there. What's interesting about those is a lot of them actually aren't funded by venture uh, companies. They're, they're making money the old fashioned way of selling stuff to customers. You have services firms that have started to bottle their secret sauce, you know, and put it into apps. And so one of the challenges we often have with the MarTech landscape is even trying to decide, like, where do you draw the line? Now, I'll give you one example. Now, I'll shut up on this. But if you take WordPress, so the WordPress ecosystem 
has something like 50 or 60,000 plugins. And we're talking about 13,000 companies on 13,000 solutions on the MarTech landscape. But if you think about WordPress, just having 50 to 60,000 plugins, now the question becomes like, okay, well, should every one of those be on the landscape? Well, okay. Probably not. In fact, who knows what percentage of those are actually still viable, how many of them suck, how many of them are defunct, you know, but you just recognize that this 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 long tail, it's even longer than like, you know, you could even rationally try and put uh, into a landscape. And so I don't know, will the whole thing compress? Anything's possible, but there's, there's been no empirical evidence to date <laughs> that we're going back to the old world where, yeah, there's just a handful of software companies in the world and, you know, they control it all. Yeah, and, and we'll include this in the, in the show notes. I liked in your report, you divided it into like a head, torso, and tails, and then you put some parameters around it. Like the head is truly like the most impactful companies, HubSpot, Adobe, you know, 10 to 20 billion of revenue. Then the torso is... 100 to 200 million of revenue, and there's call it a hundred, a few hundred of those uh, was my interpretation. And then the rest is the tail, which I think the numbers work out. That's like 12,000 companies are in that long tail. And a question is like, what is the real impact of this long tail in terms of like, how does it impact the torso and the head? Like, does it gum up their ability to have quick sales cycles? Does it interfere with their product roadmaps where they have to pay attention to this long tail and offer more integrations? Like what is the true like concern level you should have if you're a torso or a head about this existence of another 12,000 companies nominally competing for your budgets and, and your marketers attention and the like? Yeah. Well, it's definitely a, two-edged sword. So there's there's a potential upside, and then there's the pressure, uh, which can also have an upside to it, but definitely uh, isn't, isn't comfortable. You know, uh, I, I'd say the pressure side, let's start with the downside of that, is actually really good things for like customers, for consumers, which is you cannot have a large software company anymore that rests on its laurels. You know, and I won't name names, but there was a certain playbook decades ago of how these large companies would consolidate within a particular space. And then once they consolidated, basically two things would happen. They would stop innovating because, yeah, was, why, why do we need to spend any more money? We basically locked in, you know, the customer base. And then they'd steadily just keep raising their prices uh, every year because what are you going to do? Like, you're just, you're chained there. You're not leaving, you know. And so... Well, you might claim that was a great business model for those giant companies. Most of the people on the buying side, a little less uh, ideal. I think the fact that we live in a world where there is just now so much constant competitive pressure, you know, not just on price, but more importantly, arguably, on innovation and new features. Like, so when, you know, things like Gen AI happened last year, boy, you know, the incumbents, you know, in the MarTech space were incredibly quick to like jump on this and start to take advantage of it because they knew if they didn't, there was going to be like a whole inflection point of new startups who like, oh, this is our great opportunity to disrupt these companies, you know, and ultimately, while that puts pressure on the largest companies to make sure they maintain their innovation, make sure that they're finding ways to deliver efficiency, you know, to their customers, not just to their own bottom line. 
that actually becomes a really great thing for customers. And I would argue, actually, if you play that over the long term, it is actually then a really good thing for those MarTech companies to do. It's not easy, but it's a great, it's great for their long-term survival to be able to constantly operate in that environment. And then the thing that I'd say is a really a true upside, which, you know, yeah, I can kind of disclaim I'm plugging this a bit for why I joined HubSpot, is when I was first mapping out this growing scale in the you know, MarTech landscape, a lot of the large MarTech companies were initially treating it as an adversarial relationship. Like, oh, well, you know, you need to buy us so that you don't have to buy any of this other stuff. And it always struck me that the, the opportunity there was actually for these large companies, these tent poles in the MarTech industry, to actually embrace, you know, that long tail, to basically open up their platforms, create these app ecosystems, you know, yes, there'd be places where there'd be, you know, overlap and competitive pressure. But the truth is, when you look across the long tail, you see so many different niche use cases, you know, for particular functions or, hey, there's this emerging channel or we want to experiment with this new kind of tactic that it actually wouldn't be in the interest of the major MarTech platform to try and develop all this stuff themselves. It would just be you know, spreading their resources too thin. But if they can create a solid foundation that allows those things to plug in and allow companies to bring some sort of cohesion and coherence to that, then actually having these ecosystems be this driver of all these innovations and specializations and niches around the platform I actually think it's a greater opportunity for the major. I mean, again, this is this is my playbook, right? This is you look at companies like Microsoft. You know, this is the whole foundation of why Microsoft is the you know trillion dollar company that it is today. It's it's all about the ecosystem. Yeah, this translates really well into a whole platform versus point solutions or pure plays. And we recently published some research, and it basically the net conclusion of that was that you know platforms are an advantage that the you know 80% buying preference um, from the buying side of things, dealing with one vendor is pretty well established. And then when you look at the kind of user ratings, the, the platforms are just as good as pure plays on average. And then back to this broader point, though, about like the number of apps and integrations is in HubSpot's analyst day for investors, they had a great graph that showed the number of marketplace integrations you guys offer. In 2017, it was 54 apps in your native marketplace. Today, it's 1,500. And my theory has been that the leading platforms that can form these ecosystems are incredibly advantaged in a fragmented world because these long tail companies can only really write integrations for you know, HubSpot and Salesforce. They can't do it for 15 platforms. They got to pick one, two, or three to kind of support uh, if you're a smaller company. And that lends itself to like the biggest getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It, it, so I pretty much set up the answer for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> Would you uh, agree? Yeah, yeah. Here, here, here's hoping. I mean, again, actually at some level, I think it creates a... Like when you talk about the power dynamics, right? You know, there's this thing of like, okay, well, if you have the major platform and you have the smaller long tail partner, like if you had that just in isolation, one of the concerns would be like, okay, well, does the platform just have too much dominant power, you know, over the long tail provider? 
But because we live in a, an environment where there's actually multiple large platforms competing with each other, this actually becomes a dimension where, again, this is what I do for a living here at HubSpot, is it's really important to me that partners have the opportunity to be more successful in the HubSpot ecosystem than some of our other competitors, yeah. you know? And I'm sure there are other competitors who are looking at HubSpot being like, oh no, I bet we can find a way to make it even better for the partner than HubSpot does. And so that's a great thing. It provides that sort of balance that, yeah, I don't know, just makes it so that being a long tail participant in an ecosystem, you have your own sort of, you know, voting with your feet, uh, you know, leverage opportunity as well, too. Yeah. And it's interesting thinking about these like ecosystems is, I don't know, 2015, 2017. I don't think anyone would have seen Salesforce at, at risk as an ecosystem. As, you know, and the how HubSpot kind of came up at, as it turned out to be. And so, you know, there are, you know, opportunities and threats in, in any of these ecosystems, of course. Well, again, and this comes back to the same thing as we were saying earlier from our tech companies. It is ultimately good for everyone that basically competition continues to be a present force, whether it's at the app level, whether it's at the platform level. It's not comfortable <laughs> for us all to be competing with each other, but it's the thing that actually moves this forward in a way that makes sure, yeah, ultimately at the end of the day, we're finding our way as a market to best serve what the customers actually want. And then another kind of on this point was in, in your MarTech in 2024 report, you touched a good bit on this concept of composability. First, could you explain what composability really means? For MarTech? Yeah, it's a little bit of a $10 word, but in the context of MarTech, people have thought about it like, okay, well, if I want to build an internal workflow or if I want to build an external facing customer experience, that I might pull together these building blocks from perhaps multiple different apps or multiple different uh, data sources. I mean, you, you, the, the traditional metaphor is kind of like a Lego set of like, okay, I've got all these different Legos and yeah, maybe I get a Lego set that comes out of the box and I'm going to build the Millennium Falcon just this particular way, step by step. But then you have other companies who are like, yeah, I kind of like the Millennium Falcon, but I got my own idea of what I want to do. Can I like rearrange these blocks to better fit my own particular business model? And at the end of the day, this really comes down to two things. One, it's the ability for data to be open across these different tools. And that's one of the wonderful things we've seen with the rise of the cloud data warehouse is increasingly all companies in the MarTech space have to open up their data. Like customers just, you know, insist on it, uh, which is great because then that data can be reused and repurposed in a variety of different locations. And then the other thing is opening up their service capabilities via APIs, which again, most MarTech companies have had to do, you know, just even building the integrations with their key partners. But so you now have the sort of the raw building blocks in place where increasingly companies can assemble custom workflows, custom customer experiences through this mix of, you know, open data and API services. That being said, it's still a pretty technical thing at the moment. And so this is one of the things that I get excited about from some of the Gen AI innovation is you're slowly starting to see like these no code environments that just make it easier and easier. I, I, I use Zapier as uh, an yeah, example because, yeah, yeah. you know, they're doing a lot of stuff and they've really embraced it generative AI, just making it easier and easier for a non 
engineer to be able to say, oh, yeah, I kind of want my own custom workflow that when this happens here, I'll pull this service here and I want to send this data over there. And then if this, do this other thing. And oh, yeah, cool. That's exactly what I wanted to have happen. That's sort of the world we're headed into. And that's what I mean by composability. And what are the risks of composability? Are there maintenance considerations that, you know, some custom workflow that you built yourself, you know, needs some degree of maintenance or quality assurance? Like who knows how well an individual contributor writes a workflow? Like what do you think about composability as risky per se? Yes. So you're absolutely like dealing with a trade-off here. So I think of it as business risk and technical risk in many ways. Like the business risk we've been under is when we make it so hard for individuals to do their jobs, to try their ideas, to innovate in their space, the opportunity costs on that are huge. You know, and anyone who's ever had to experience this idea of filing a ticket for IT and being told like, yeah, there's a nine month backlog and uh, we'll see about getting to you then, realize, I mean, that is actual real business risk. That being said, there is absolutely the other side of like, okay, as you start to empower people to be able to self-service more of these needs, you need to put governance in place to make sure that, okay, well, first of all, are they accessing the data and services that they have permission to do? So this sort of like tracking of it, like if, you know, someone assembles one of these things and then, hey, it's working great, but then they leave, they take some other job somewhere else, like, you know, how do you make sure that thing doesn't become like some zombie, you know, digital operation thing floating out there? And again, this is an area where I feel like, okay, that is a legitimate set of concerns, but that's also a set of concerns that can be addressed through technology. Uh, We see a lot of this happening at the data layer right now with like better data governance products. I'll disclaim I'm an advisor to a company called Workato that's uh, Mm. kind of a more enterprise version of like a Zapier. You know, and this is a huge part of what they do is they're like, okay, well, CIO, you're going to empower different business ops teams and other departments to build stuff, but you still get this master control console of the governance and the guardrails of who can do what, and I'm able to keep track of what things are operating and does something start generating errors and has this become a zombie, you know, and so there's there's a pathway through it, but I, I think you're right, it's where... We're solving one set of challenges, uh, but now, hey, great. Uh, you know, we now have a new set of challenges that we have to work through to uh, harness the full benefit of it. And, you know, what would your recommendation be to like a CMO or a marketing leader, like in this composable world, like what type of teams do you need? What are some principles you should have to like succeed in this new world? Well, I think for every marketing organization of any scale at this point, you absolutely need a great marketing operations team. I mean, marketing operations, I don't know, one analyst years ago referred to it as the island of misfit toys. That was, oh, yeah, I'll group off there. Like, yeah, they'll do the spreadsheets for us, you know, and keep track of skew reports or stuff like that. The world has changed. Like, you know, modern marketing (laughs) runs entirely, you know, on this digital infrastructure and having a fantastic marketing operations team that's running that is, I think, now one of the key differentiators between, yeah, are you actually going to succeed in this environment or not? You know, and that's not to say that marketing operations is an island unto itself. It is like for most companies now, marketing operations works very closely with IT. IT is increasingly like the owner of a lot of the universal infrastructure, particularly around the data layer, potentially around things like the enterprise automation layer. 
But then the marketing operations team are the folks who take that infrastructure and actually able to apply it to the use cases that matter, uh, you know, for the marketing organization. Interesting. And how do you think of like composability in terms of its impact on this uh, head torso tail dynamic? And uh, one thing I'll get in before you answer that, that again, will be in the show notes is um, Scott and his team did this great study of stacks, tech stacks, a number of things, uh, apps mentioned. And the head pretty consistently was 15 to 20% of the stack the torso around 30%, and then this long tail, 50% of apps in use. So that's what I was referring to in terms of head, torso, and tail, and wanted to find an opportunity to highlight uh, Scott's work there. Yeah. Now, that, that data actually caught us by surprise because, again, the popular narrative is that yes, you get a lot of companies that can be in the long tail and then they move to the torso and then you know we consolidate around the head. And if you listen to vendor narrative, you'd sort of like assume like, okay, well, over time you would expect the majority of stacks to be just core apps in the head. So it was a little bit surprising to see actually, yeah, the percentage of apps that are in stacks that are quote unquote long tail apps has been both A, the largest segment, and it's been consistent more or less for the past six, seven years. It was even a little surprising to us, but then part of it is to recognize that this is a fluid environment. You know, it is the case that very often you'll see new technology or new capabilities that emerge in the long tail, you know, and as those things become um, more mainstream and they become more commonplace, it's not unusual then, you know, for the largest companies in that space, you know, in the head or the torso to either acquire those solutions or build their own version of it, just because that's now the new competitive, you know, uh, uh, base level that's expected by customers. But what's interesting is, again, this isn't a one-shot game. While those emerging capabilities from five years ago are sort of, you know, working their way through from long tail to torso to head, every year there's like a new set of like emerging capabilities that, you know, come out and many of them then start in the, you know, long tail then. And so you just see it as this very uh, fluid, I don't know, I don't know if any of the, the listeners remember like Gartner's pace layering diagram of systems of record, systems of differentiation, systems of innovation. It's it's almost like that's actually a pretty good way of thinking of most MarTech stacks and that top level of systems of innovation. It's just very fluid. For sure. And so it's an interesting dynamic, this, this composability. And it raises an interesting question, right? Is if you're a, a platform or one of the leading players and with this dynamic of composability that you have to have your data open, you have to offer all these integrations. Like, is that really fair to you as a vendor, right? Because you're kind of taking on these obligations, you're doing this enablement, but you're not necessarily getting paid for it. You know, again, this is really a question of first and foremost, like how are you delivering value to customers, right? I mean, any business, exists because, okay, customers are getting a tremendous amount of value out of that product. Otherwise, they move to other products, you know, and then the question becomes like, okay, well, how do you capture enough of that value to be a sustainable, profitable, you know, growing enterprise? And what's interesting there is you don't always have to perfectly like align like everything that gives value to a customer doesn't mean you necessarily need to monetize each of those specific things. 
if you have a monetization mechanism that is actually giving you a very fair share, you know, uh, of revenue for total value you're being created. And I think this is one of the things we see in a lot of ecosystems. I mean, there are ways to directly monetize an ecosystem. Um, you know, I mean, like the Salesforce uh, app exchange, right? They take a percentage of transactions, you know, through that. We see that with the Shopify store. Um, HubSpot doesn't do that today with our marketplace, but, you know, we might consider doing that at some point in time. You know, so there are ways to get direct revenue from these stores. But even when you look at the companies that directly monetize their ecosystems that way, as a percentage of their total revenue, it's not a tremendous amount, you know, but it's really because they have these ecosystems and customers are able to use them as these centers of gravity, you know, to orchestrate, to provide the cohesion, you know, to all these other digital apps and, you know, uh, operations that they're running. Is it actually become, I mean, the platform gains so much value from being that center of gravity um, that, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's an indirect uh, monetization uh, of these ecosystems. But just because it's indirect doesn't mean it like, I mean, it's like you can't actually see gravity, but I assure you, <laughs> like gravity is a pretty important force. <laughs> yeah, these, these are all excellent points. And, and what I particularly like about your work is is you have a lot of frameworks in there. And again, for people to go read these around frequency of usage and how to think about utilization. There's a lot of stuff in, in this report that you could, you know, as an investor or a you know, strategist rely on for years to come in terms of just how to think through market dynamics, not just in MarTech. So I've really enjoyed the opportunity to, to speak with you about some of these um, and I, I'm sure our audience will. Do you have anything you want to promote? I know you have a lot of content. Uh, anything you want to recommend to the world? Well, again, thanks thanks for having me, Matt. Um, yeah, well, we've been talking about that MarTech for uh, 2024 report. Uh, so, yeah, I guess like if you link it to the blog post, uh, we are still actually gating the report at the moment uh, in service to our uh, sponsors, uh, you know, who helped us uh, make this all happen. But yeah, I think that would be uh, probably for most listeners, maybe the most interesting thing to pick up a copy. And yeah, feel free to write me back and let me know if you agree, disagree, what other questions you have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate the time. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks.